Hosea chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4 this morning. We want to examine this morning the subject of the earned wrath of God. I want you to think in your mind as we are looking in the book of Hosea, uh, think in your mind as well (coughs) about the book of Romans, chapter 6, chapter 3, deal specifically with our sin. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we read His Word this morning. Father, we come to You this morning and we're in great need of grace, Father, just for open eyes. Father, we readily confess and we readily acknowledge that we need grace for salvation. But Father, what we often neglect and fail to realize is that we need grace for confession. Father, we need grace to confess our lack of righteousness. We need grace to confess our sins of commission and omission. Father, this morning as we read Your Word, Father, I pray for an accompanying power of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to bestow that grace. Father, that we would be as Your servants and that we would confess what we just sung, that we confess that Your judgment is just. And we confess that our sin is wrong. Father, cleanse each of our hearts. Spirit of God, search and know us. Father, let us confess this morning at the end of our time in your word that you are as glorified in your wrath as you are in your redemption that you are so perfect and just in all that you do, whether you save or whether you judge, you are right. And our worship should be increased and enlarged because of it. Father, may we find mercy. May we find a great reversal in Christ as we confess our sins. May we find Christ sufficient. May we find Christ precious because we have found sin bitter. As the great Puritan once said. Father, we ask that you would speak and move now through your word, by your spirit. God, exalt yourself that we might worship you rightly. For we pray it in your name. Amen. Would you join me in standing as we read the text this morning, Hosea chapter 4. Hosea now enters into the meat of his sermon. In chapter 4, he has spent the last three chapters under the divine inspiration of God in a back-and-forth illustration of his own marriage, a literal marriage with that of God's relationship with Israel. And now from chapter 4 through 14, he will focus simply on the preaching of this sermon to the nation of Israel. And he says, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and everyone who lives in it languishes along with the beast of the field and the birds of the sky and also the fish of the sea disappear. Yet let no one find fault and let none offer reproof. 
For your people are like those who contend with the priest. So you will stumble by day. The prophet also will stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they multiply, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity, and it will be like people like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat but not have enough. They will play the harlot but not increase. Because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. My people consult their wooden idol. And their diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray. And they have played the harlot departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains. And burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth. Because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot or your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifice with temple prostitutes so that the people without understanding are ruined. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, do not let Judah become guilty or do not go to and also do not go to Gilgal, go up to Beth Haven and take the oath as the Lord lives. Since Israel is stubborn like a stubborn heifer, can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. Their liquor is gone, they play the harlot continually. Their rulers dearly love shame. The wind wraps them in its wings and they will be ashamed because of their sacrifice. Thank you. Be seated. This is the word of God that he has spoken. I know that you would find this to be true as you attempt to talk to people about the gospel. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, this is also the place where our own spiritual growth begins to break down. To look at someone in the face and Tell them that they are a sinner is the most offensive thing that you can do. And yet, this is where the gospel must begin. The gospel cannot begin at the cross. The gospel cannot begin with the good news until we first deliver the bad news. And yet that's where we find difficulty. It's where we find difficulty talking to that family member and looking them in the eye with all of the grace and compassion of Jesus Christ and saying to them, you have a fundamental problem. You are a sinner. And not only are you a sinner, but the second phase of that very difficult task comes in as we tell them you are under the wrath of God. After all, in our overly psychotherapeutic age and in our age that has no concept at all of what the God of the Bible is like, we are not sinners and God is loving. And yet, in order to experience the grace of God, the redemption of God, it is necessary that we both understand that, yes, we indeed are sinners and that we have earned the very perfect, right, and just wrath of God. Or we will never be saved. For all who would be tempted to read passages like Hosea chapter 4 and see God as unfair or unnecessarily harsh in his dealings with Israel, God lays out his indictment very specifically, very clearly. 
Some would see God as a vacillating deity who preached grace yesterday in chapter 3 and wrath today in chapter 4. But brothers and sisters, this morning I want you to know something. That there is grace in the indictment of God. There is grace in the wrath of God against which we are warned. God is not pleased to judge sinners. In fact, the book of Ezekiel tells us that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God does not delight to destroy that which He has created. It is not His hobby. We can go to the other extreme where God doesn't judge at all, and then we can swing to the other side in our in our human uh, tendency to be unbalanced, and we can say, God is going to destroy everything. And uh, But God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God has no pleasure in the destruction of His creation. God would rather that they repent. And that is the message of Hosea, that God loves His people enough to indict them, enough to condemn them, enough to judge them, not ultimately, but to warn them in such a way that they would repent and return back to Him. How do we know this? Because God, for years, even generation after generation of prophecy, calls the nation of Israel back to the fold. He doesn't immediately destroy them, although He would have been just to do so. But prophet after prophet, king after king, generation after generation, hear God's warning, hear God's indictment to turn back to me. I love you. But I cannot ignore your sin. Let's not be tempted to see God as warning of wrath simply to intimidate or to uh, get his bluff in. Brothers and sisters, let us see this morning that our earned wrath and the indictment of God, the warning of God, is for grace's sake. We must understand that what God is doing here is infinitely grace-filled. You're a sinner. There is wrath coming. Repent and return. As Calvin points out in his commentary on Hosea, this begins in chapter 4, a new portion of the book. It also needs to be noted this morning that Hosea did not merely preach these words one time. He preached them over and over and over and over and over again. He wouldn't have even been a good uh, traveling evangelist. He didn't even have seven sermons. He had one. Repent. God is angry with you. Someone once approached the great English evangelist George Whitfield, who actually did more work in America than he ever did in England. In fact, it was said of Whitfield that more people knew who George Whitfield was by sight than George Washington in the days of the colonies. Almost 70% of Americans living in the latter part of the 1700s actually heard George Whitfield preach. And Whitfield essentially had one message, and it went like this, you must be born again. One lady approached Whitfield after his, one of his sermons which she had heard and, and had heard him numerous times, and she said to him, sir, why is it that you are always saying you must be born again? And he looked at her and said, because you must be born again. Hosea is that way. You are a sinner. God is angry with you and God is about to judge you. It's a repetitive sermon that he preaches. Calvin said this, Men must be often awakened. For forgetfulness of God creeps over them. They indulge themselves. And nothing is more difficult than to lead them to God. Nay, when they have made some advances, they soon turn aside to some other course. Now, I want you to listen to that again. And I want you to listen to that with you as the subject. 
speaking of you. Tell me if this is not true of your life. I know it certainly is of my life. We must be often awakened. For forgetfulness of God often creeps over us. Do you find that true? I do. I do. I indulge myself and nothing is more difficult than to lead me to God. Nay, when I have made some advances, I soon turn aside to some other course. Oh, how quickly we stray. Because of the hardness of our own hearts. Why? Would Hosea repeat these sermons over and over? Because we have hard hearts. And because the judgment of God is imminently close. Because God's wrath is exceedingly harsh. And also because the nearness of God's grace in Christ is so abundant. It's easy to preach the wrath of God when we understand how close the cross is. When we can run and flee to Christ. Let us hear now the indictment against their sin. First of all, Hosea dives in. And he discusses the progression of their rebellion. Look in the text this morning in verses 1 through 3. And we'll have to move quickly through these. But Hosea begins to talk about the progression of their sin. And I want you to place yourself here. Because no grotesque sin, no rebellion ever happens quickly. The very real possibility that you and I are somewhere in this paradigm, somewhere in this scope is frightening. It can happen, and it's like the proverbial frog in the water. He doesn't even know the water is boiling because it has increased so gradually. That's the story of Israel. Brothers and sisters, may I say, that's our testimony as well. We so easily slide into sin, and none of us at that point that we realize, oh God, I've been wrong, we look back and we say it didn't happen overnight was a slow desensitization to sin in my life, this progression. Now, listen, we here uphold the doctrine of man's total depravity. We, we believe that there is nothing good in us, zero. Every bit of us is falling. There's not an area of our life where sin is not. In fact, if you followed the recent Southern Baptist Convention, one of the tenets that was presented to the convention for adoption but was not adopted, praise God, said that man was not totally depraved, that there were still some aspects of man that were not touched, chief of which was his, his will and his desire and ability to choose what is right. It's not biblical. Even Roger Olson from Truett Seminary at Baylor wrote as a classical Arminian and said, I can't even endorse this. This is the sin of Pelagianism that was condemned in the first few centuries of the church. I can't even go along with this. But we believe that. We believe that the Bible teaches us that all have sinned and they have sinned completely and we are totally fallen. But there's a question that arises when we talk about total depravity. Someone would say, if all men are totally depraved, why do we have people like my sweet old grandmother who never came to faith in Christ but never murdered anyone? If she was totally depraved, how is it that Hitler was totally depraved? What is the correlation? We would say that all men are completely depraved, yet... All men don't equally act on their depravity. Not all give in to and indulge their depravity. 
But one thing is for sure, whether you are Joseph Stalin or whether you are Mother Teresa, who never, uh, as far as we know, came to full faith in Christ, people like that, uh, one thing is for sure. They all began at the same place. The progression of sin, whether it becomes so flamboyant and flagrant like people that we would name, mass murderers, serial thieves, or whether it's just somebody who quietly rejects Christ, they all begin in the same place. Some pursue it more aggressively. And some do not. But one thing is for sure, sin begins small and begins to grow. We are all born sinners. When we examine Israel's history and we examine our own lives, we find that we too slowly digress into the godlessness of disobedience and idolatry. We become desensitized to sin and then we tolerate sin and then finally we indulge sin. The root causes, Hosea says, are this, as God is building the indictment. This is a legal proceeding. This is before the grand jury when the indictment is being uh, debated and, and presented. He deals with their heart. He, he starts at the place where all of our sin begins, and that is in our heart. He says, number one, there is no truth. There is no faithfulness. Now, in most of our Bibles, I would imagine this word because there is no faithfulness. The word is literally translated truth. The first is a passive condition or root. That the people had no trustworthiness, he's saying. There's no truth in them. They were utterly untrustworthy people toward each other. Well, let me ask you, what kind of relationship can you have with an untrustworthy person? You can't have one. You have no relationship, right? What's your marriage built on? Trust. Mutual trust. You can't have a healthy marriage if, if they, both spouses do not trust each other. And God says, the first indictment against you, the first symptom of your sin is that, that you are passively an untrustworthy person. There is no faithfulness. There is no truth in you. God says, I have an indictment against you because of this. God demands honesty. God demands truth in the inward parts, the psalmist said. Secondly, and attached to this, look at the text. He says, there is no truthfulness in you. You're untrustworthy. But also, there is no loving kindness in you. If you are a truthful person, if you are a faithful person, if you have integrity, it naturally flows that you will be a loving person. We would have genuine love if we are people of integrity. We would love our neighbor. And in Hosea's day, they didn't do this. They were untrustworthy. They were cutthroat. They would, they would rob their neighbor. In fact, if you go on and read the prophets, they had, uh, they had scales that were weighted. They manipulated the widows. They mistreated the orphans. And God says, you're, you're not a trustworthy people. There's no integrity in you. And that shows by the fact that you have absolutely no loving kindness, first and foremost, towards me. And because you have no love for me, you have no love for your fellow man. I'm thinking of the book of Revelation and the church in Ephesus. What was their condemnation? They left their first love. They left a love of God. Because of that, everything else crumbled. So they're untrustworthy. They're not loving. But then he goes on and he says this. There's no knowledge of God. Now, here's the scary part. Here's where you and I live. 
We live in a digital age where we are inundated with information. We have every bit of theological, nuanced thought published in books and online and in blogs and articles. And the author is not talking about that kind of knowledge. The people in Israel knew the intellectual facts about God. The priest had told them. The parents had told them. In fact, one of the the things that God is condemning, listen to this, in Hosea's day, was not that they had totally left the worship of Yahweh, but that they were trying to combine the worship of Yahweh with the worship of Baal. They hadn't totally lost their knowledge of God. They knew who He was, but they were trying to mix it. They were having blended worship in a truest sense. Baal, Yahweh. And God says, I can't stand it. You have the intellectual facts about me, but what Hosea is saying is, you have no idea about my will. You have no idea of my heart. You have no idea of my ways. Because if you did, you would not live like you're living. Oh, you, you have, you could, you could write a theological dissertation on who I am, but you can't live it. Brothers and sisters, let us be warned. Let us be careful that we do not have a knowledge of God that is confined to head only and not to life. To know the facts, but not the ways of God. We have to know His ways. That is why the psalmist who was so intimately acquainted with God, when he said, when he praised God, when he was in that fervent worship of God, he didn't say, God, you are boom, 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 boom. And list a bunch of facts. He said, how wonderful and marvelous are your ways. I understand you. I don't just know you. I understand. I have a heart for God, not just a mind for God. And so these are the heart conditions that God begins to condemn in Israel. Now, this is interesting. Now in verse 2, he begins to address the outward symptoms of what is going on. And, and, and he begins, and he doesn't specifically say it, but what he lists are violation of the Ten Commandments. Could, could somebody sum up the Ten Commandments? Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. That's it. That's how Jesus summed it up. Read Matthew 22. You'll find that's what Jesus said. This is what it all hangs on. Love God, love your neighbor. And this obviously was not happening. There is no loving kindness. And so he begins to show that outwardly, here is how you're violating this. And isn't it interesting? This idea of the love of God and love of neighbor being the heart of the Ten Commandments then becomes that the problem with Israel and the problem with us when we are uh, indicted by God is that the problem doesn't so much stem from a problem with obedience as it does a problem with love. Your kids do something. We do something. There's disobedience. You know, the heart of the matter is that the, the, the obedience, yes, is an issue, but the real issue is that they didn't love you enough to obey you. They didn't love the ways of the household, so to speak. They loved their own way more. And so what God is condemning in Israel is not so much just the external disobedience, but the lack of love in their heart. And we violate outwardly because we lack love inwardly. 
It's not that they didn't obey, it's that they did not love God. Now, Hosea's marriage pictures sin for us. Chapters 1 through 3, Gomer and Hosea, it pictures sin not as disobedience. Did, is, does it ever allude to the fact that Gomer disobeyed Hosea? But you know what it does allude to time and time again? She did not love Hosea. She didn't love him. And she is the picture of Israel. She is the picture of the sinner. She is our picture. And her problem was not that she didn't obey. The problem was that she did not love. Unloving actions toward a loving God are the sinful problem. It is the unequal, the unbalanced gulf between God and man. Unloving actions towards an unloving God. And what are the unloving actions? Because we do not love God look like it looks like this. They swear, they deceive, they murder, they steal, they commit adultery, and they murder. Swearing is a violation of the third command. Taking God's name in vain. Swearing by His name. They had no regard for the sanctity of God's name. Do we love God so much that we have a reverence for His very name? Or do we attach God's name in trite and in, in, in insignificant ways to things? Can I tell you that blaspheming doesn't just involve saying explicit like, oh my, and then attaching the Lord's name? We swear we blaspheme God's name when we throw His name around tritely or when we attach His name to things that do not bring honor and glory to Him. That's why the church has to be so careful to be a biblically defined church. Because we are calling ourselves the church of Jesus Christ. If we are not reflecting biblically what the church of Jesus Christ is, we have blasphemed. We have attached his name to something that does not promote his character rightly. People will throw Jesus' names onto anything from an expletive to the latest prayer to get what they want. And it's all blasphemy. And he says, you've done this to me. Not only do they swear they deceive, this is a violation of the ninth command to speak truth with your neighbor. Proverbs chapter 6 verse 17 says, God hates a lying tongue and by clear logic of saying, if we love God, we'll love what he loves and hates what he hates, then we should hate a lying tongue too. And yet the people in Hosea's day routinely deceived each other to manipulate for their own profit. There's the murder. That's the violation of the sixth command. The ultimate statement of a lack of love is to kill someone. They're stealing. This is a violation of the eighth command. Talk about ingratitude. That's the heart of stealing. I'm not grateful for the provision I have, so I'll take what I think I need. God, I don't love the way you've provided for me. I'll take what I want. There's adultery, which is a violation of the seventh command, a supreme act of selfishness, not love. Well, I committed adultery just because, man, I, I loved her. No, you didn't. You loved yourself. You know, the thing about adultery is it's not only selfishness, but it is an outright refusal to love. The Bible says, love the wife God gave you. When you commit adultery, you're saying, not only am I going to be selfish, but I am going to refuse to love the woman that you did give me or the man that you gave me. In all of these ways, Israel is demonstrating their lack of love for God. We're just as guilty, brothers and sisters. 
of that lack of love that yields in any number of outward symptoms. Hosea goes on and he says that the extent of their sin is like this. Look at what he says at the end of verse 2. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. That's a Hebrew euphemism. In the Hebrew, it looks like this. It's a picture that should be painted. And it's literally one murder touches the next murder. So that there's an unbroken chain of murder. That's the Hebrew picture. We might say it this way in our day. It's one right after the other. And they're touching. They're connected. And he said that's the extent of their sin. This is how bad it has gotten. It is one unbroken chain of disobedience and a demonstration of a very lack of love for God. God says, however, sin has broad consequence. Look at verse 3. The land mourns, everyone who lives in it languishes, the beast of the field, the birds of the sky, and the fish of the sea. How much does your sin affect those around you? Completely. We have this idea that sin and the fall really only affects our eternal destiny. But brothers and sisters... Sin affects everything all the way down to nature. And we joke about this when we get sick, right? I do, at least. Every time I get sick, my first thing out of my mouth, thanks, Adam, thanks, Eve, right? And we joke about it. But you know, that's how serious sin is. That that, that sin is so massive in its effect that it literally throws the world out of sync. And that started at the fall. God says sin has consequences, and the consequences are massive. Look back in Deuteronomy chapter 11. He's illustrating to Israel the the scope of sin's consequence. And he says this in in Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 17. It shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain, and you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give you grass in your fields for your cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them, Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. Now, I'm not asking for you to write a letter to the editor when you get home today and say that I can, without contradictions say that Midland is in a drought today because the mayor is in sin. But the reality is that the earth groans because of sin. The creation itself has these cyclical patterns of destruction and drought and famine because of the fall. And God tied Israel, who was directly linked to an agrarian culture, he ties their sin directly to that to help them really feel the pain and get the point. He says, sin, you'll know it's there because there won't be rain, and there won't be animals, and all of nature is going to feel your consequence of sin. Deuteronomy 28 goes on and gives more on this. Nature would bear and reflect the judgment of God against His people because of their sin and lack of living by His ways. Israel, their relationship to the land that God gave them was part of God's covenant dealings with them in their relationship. You want to get Israel's attention? Deal with the land. The land was a symbol of God's covenant promise to them. They were attached to it very deeply. And so when God wanted to get their attention, take them out of the land, make the land quit producing. Israel, listen, it's like your child. They love certain things. You want to get their attention, you take the thing away. You say, now look at me. 
We're not going to do this anymore. And so God would often deal directly with nature and their sin would be demonstrated to be the massive rebellion against God that it is. Today, our relationship is through Christ to God, not through the land. And we have the cross. And you say, you want to know how massive sin is? You want to know the impact of your sin? Look at the cross. You think about it, when Jesus died, that was not a good day to be alive. It wasn't. When the sky goes, grows dark, and by the way, I think we tend to think of this in the small scope of Jerusalem or maybe even just the Holy Land. But brothers and sisters, when the sun goes out, the sun goes out. And the earth goes into darkness for a period of time. And the earth begins to shake. And animals are not in their normal sequences. And when veils in the temple begin to rend. And when graves begin to uh, shake themselves. Nature responded to sin that day. Nature responded to the judgment of God that day. But then all begins to be restored as Christ is raised from the dead. And we have that future hope to look forward to that someday even this old poor earth under the millennial reign of Jesus Christ will experience a pre-fall life. It's going to be restored. Until God says it's through, (laughs) right? Some, Some people have humorously printed things that I've seen and say, if you think global warming something, wait until you see what God does to it. He's going to melt it. It's gone. So sin has a massive consequence. But then sin, God deals with the hardness of the people's heart in verses 4 through 6. He says this, he says, let no one find fault. And let none offer reproof. In the midst of God's judicial indictment, He also condemns them for their hard-heartedness. Apparently there were those who would have stuck their fingers self-righteously in God's face and say, how dare you? Who do you think you are? We are your covenant people. How can you judge us like this? And he says, but let's be clear here. Don't let anybody find fault. Let none offer reproof to me. I am God. I rightly do everything and perfectly do everything. You dare not contend with me. Jeremiah in the potter's house. It's God who sovereignly molds the vessel. And we have no right over it. Paul in Romans chapter 9 says it this way, How can the thing that is created say to the one who created it, Why did you make me like this? We don't have that right. We don't have that authority to question. And so God says very clearly here, let's be clear, I'm God. You don't find fault in me. And there is no good answer for your sin. There's a question in the military that goes like this. What's the effective range of an excuse? Zero meters. There is no good excuse. No one will stand before God and offer a valid excuse for their sin. Look at what the people do. He said, if your people are like those who contend with the priest. In other words, they contend and reject and argue with those who God appointed to be their spiritual leaders. Now, being a priest or being a prophet in Hosea's day was not, uh, shall we say, a desirable position. At least if you were attempting to be faithful to God. 
these sinful people offering a very real implication of their fallenness and their hard-heartedness, argue with those whom God had given to lead them spiritually. God has always appointed spiritual leadership. It's part of His design. Now in the church, it's pastors and elders. In Hosea's day, it's priests and it's prophets. But God has always appointed spiritual leadership as His design and the means for the betterment and growth of His people. And can I just say that's a, a very much a, a, a trend in our society today to be just like Hosea's day? We are almost living, and I've likened this several times to people in the course of casual conversation, We, our culture today reminds me a lot of the French Revolution. If you're an authority, you're bad. If you're a spiritual authority, you're worse. And we, we have a whole subculture that prizes their individualism, and it's sinful and it's wrong. They don't like the church. They have a bad ecclesiology. They have a bad doctrine of the church. And because of that, they don't like the church's leaders. And that's very evident and very clear to the point that the, the, a number of the best-selling authors today uh, that call themselves spiritual leaders say things like this. Now, I, you know, I'm, I'm too humble to say that I know what God's word means. That's why God put you there to tell people what God's word means. And so we, you know, they, 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 this this theology light, and they don't want to offend the people because they know the people don't like spiritual leadership, and so they just backpedal everything. This false humility. It's just like it was in Hosea's day. The, the people hated the priests. By the way, priests in Hosea's day didn't just offer sacrifice. They, they functioned in a variety of ways. They resolve legal disputes. Can you imagine living in a day where disputes were not carried out by the court, but by the church? By the spiritual entities that God ordained? You had a legal dispute with somebody in Israel. You didn't go find an attorney. You went and found a priest. The priest spoke very practically into the lives of their people. You would go to the priest and say, you know, uh, I'm not sure if I should do this thing or if I should take this job or if I should do this. And the priest would open the, the law of God. They would open the Torah and they would say, let's see here. What does God have to say about this? And I, I think God would be pleased with that or I think that would not be pleasing God because it violates this, that or the other. Uh, you know, we're going to counsel you to stay away from that. Okay, thank you. That's how God designed it. Well, thank you. We, we appreciate your counsel. We'll go on our way now. It wasn't that many years ago, a lady came to me. And she was very upset. She came from another church in town and she contacted me and she said, I, I need your opinion. One of her children, her husband had was deceased and her Children were starting to get to that age where they were making very crucial life decisions. And one of her children wanted to pursue a path of life and pursue it in a certain way that was secular in its nature and its worldview and was very potentially damaging to the young lady. And she says, the elders in our church said to us that they didn't feel like that would be God's will for her. And I don't think it's any of their business what my daughter does. What would you say about that? God put them there for a reason. And they're trying to help you. And they're trying to guide you. And they're offering the counsel that they're commissioned and Responsible to offer to your family's life, to speak in, speak God's truth into your life. I think I'd probably listen. You know, if it's not biblical, okay, I understand that. But I'm thinking about this and later and it just grew on me more and more. How 
We don't value spiritual leadership. That's what they did in Hosea's day. The people, if you think about what the difference between a priest and a prophet were, the priest represented the people to God. The prophet represented God to the people. I'm not a genius. You all know me. But I'm pretty sure I don't want to reject the guy that's charged with representing me to God. I don't want to make the guy mad who's supposed to be the one offering sacrifices on my behalf to appease the wrath of God. That's not a smart move. Now today we have Christ who does that for us. But in Hosea's day, they did not yet have Christ. They had the priest and the people rejected the man who would make satisfaction on their behalf with God. Not a smart move. How foolish to reject spiritual leadership. But then we find in verse 5 that things get worse. And we'll close with this. He says, because of your sin, you're going to stumble by day. Now, the frightening part is what follows. I think we've established the fact that the people have a sin issue. Here's the frightening thing. And the prophet also will stumble with you by night. Now, what does the priest do? He represents the people to God. The prophet represents God the people. And God's condemnation of Israel sounds like this. The means by which God communicates to you is about to be cut off. God will no longer speak. The prophets are going to become just like you. Let me put it in modern context. Let's say 5, 10, 20, 50, 100 years from now, America undergoes a communist revolution like they did in China. And all the jackboots march through the street and they take these books and they burn them. And God is effectively, they think, silent. Because his word's been removed. That's what happened in Hosea's day. God effectively quit communicating to his people. And brothers and sisters, when God quits communicating with us, we're dead. There is no life. Life is in the word of God. When God speaks, there is life. That's proven in creation. It's proven through Christ who is the word of God. John 1. God says, because of the hardness of your heart, because of your rejection of me, because of your rejection of spiritual leadership, I am going to cause the prophets to stumble with you. Your prophets will be just like you. That's not good news. Would you go to college? Would you actually pay to attend a university where the professors knew as much as you know and no more? I wouldn't. I want to be elevated by men who are above me, who are more knowledgeable than me, who are more experienced than me. The nation of Israel, at the greatest hour of their need, the greatest hour of sin and judgment that was coming, needed to hear from God. And God says, because you are so hard, I will cut off those who speak for me. And they'll be just like you. Brothers and sisters, that is a condemnation without equal. You just won't hear from me. You've rejected me. You've rejected the leadership I gave. Fine. No more. You want your way? You can have your way. By the way, 
there was only one thing that could deliver in them, and that was the message from God. And now it was silenced. What a rejection. What a judgment of these people. He says, I will destroy your mother. This is referencing Gomer again, the mother uh, picturing the, the, the whole nation as a whole. Uh, children picturing the individuals that comprise the nation. And so God says, I'm going to do this. The prophet's going to stumble by night and I'm going to destroy the entire nation through this. But that is so unfair. No, it's not. Remember, these are the same people who said in Exodus chapter 19, this we will do. Your voice we will obey. Your law we will keep. We will enter into a covenant with you, God. Okay? But if you break it, beware. All of this heightens our sense of need for the redemption of God in Christ. Points us forward because of the abject failure and the absolute wrath and the absolute judgment of God that we have earned by our breaking of the covenant, refusing to love God and others as we should. We need Christ. God's judgment is rightfully earned. It is rightfully given. May God help us to see our sin as such a rebellion and God's judgment as so perfect and so right that it daily causes us to run to Jesus. We need Jesus as much today as we did the first day that we realized we needed Him. We need the gospel's work in us to continue to make us like Him and to drive us farther and farther away from this kind of life in Hosea 4. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the freedom. We're thankful for the salvation. We're thankful for the restoration that we have in Jesus. Our merciful high priest, who while coming to redeem his own was rejected by his own, and yet he remained faithful so that he could call us to himself. And now we stand before him, through him, by him, cleansed. While we are unfaithful, he is unfailingly faithful. And God, what you designed to do in the punishment of sin, we confess this morning, it's right. We committed in covenant to obey. We've tried it our own way. We've tried to fulfill the law and we can't. As far back as the beginning, you gave us every good thing. You gave us every advantage that could be given to walk with you and to live with you, and, and we couldn't even do it then, God. Even when things were perfect, we still chose to sin. God, would you heighten the sense of our own depravity and sinfulness, and at the same time, heighten our dependence on Christ to save us, to keep us, to cleanse us, to build us. That you might, God, in our eyes be both just and justifier. Just in your punishment of sin and yet the justifier of those who are found in Christ. Because you have punished him for us. Father, may we be warned of the wrath to come. May we look 
longingly into your word to find and to study more, to know more about who you are and how you work. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.